your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, ytterbium, actinium, Well, welcome aboard. I'm Joe Schwartz, and I uh, host this little program every Sunday afternoon from 3 to 4 which we have now been doing for 42 years, longest-running radio show on chemistry in the history of the world, as I like to say. Of course, it is also the probably the only radio show on chemistry in the history of, of the world that is totally devoted to, to that particular subject. Uh, when I'm not chatting with you here, I uh, direct McGill's Office for Science and Society, and of course, I also teach at McGill various courses on chemistry, food, drugs, etc., but I always look forward to chatting with you here on Sunday afternoons and eliciting your questions and eliciting your answers to my questions. So let's get started with that right now. First, let's start with an easy one. What is the French paradox? What is the French paradox? If you know the answer, call us at 514 800 514-790-0800. You can also text to 514800. And obviously, that is also where you can direct whatever question you may have about uh, science that I may be able to uh, answer. All right. Uh, let me give you another question to ponder. Of what use is the root of the matter plant? Of what use is the root of the matter plant? All right. So if you know the answer to either one of those, 514-790-0800 or text to 514-800. But uh, let's start out with a story. You know, I like to tell scientific stories. And uh, I've always been fond of Thomas Edison, who has been described as America's greatest inventor. Indeed, by the time he died in 1931, he held a phenomenal 1,093 patents. Now, curiously, the invention for which he's the most famous, the light bulb, he didn't really invent. Half a century before Edison patented his light bulb in 1879, English chemist Humphrey Davy showed that when electric current flows through wires, the resistance causes them to heat up to the point where they give off light. The problem was to find a wire or filament that would glow without being destroyed. Others before Edison, Joseph Swan for one, had shown that a filament of carbonized paper in an evacuated bulb glowed for some time. Edison's major contribution was testing literally thousands of substances to find a filament that would produce light for a long time without being destroyed and setting up a network by which electricity was distributed. He famously quipped that invention is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. There were, of course, original inventions as well. The best known is the phonograph. And that really was his invention. It, it didn't build on something that had been done before. Edison was also interested in health and had an interesting quote. 
The doctor of the future will give no medicine, but will instruct his patient in care of the human frame, in diet, and in the cause and prevention of disease. He was right about prevention being important, but doctors, of course, still do prescribe medicines. That innocent quote is often used by chiropractors as they claim that diseases can be prevented by chiropractic adjustments. Well, no, Edison had nothing like that in mind. Now, a little bit more about the great inventor. On September 4, 1882, at exactly 3 p.m., Thomas Edison turned on the generators at the Pearl Street Station in Lower Manhattan, and America's first electric grid was born. That grid, of course, has been extended tremendously, but will have to still increase significantly as we switch to powering our cars with electricity to conserve petroleum and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Plans are that by 2030, 50% of vehicles on the road will run on electricity rather than on fossil fuel. The extensive grid needed will require thicker cables, and burying these in the ground will be quite disruptive. Of course, the basic question, as far as reducing carbon dioxide emissions by switching to electricity, is how the electricity to charge car batteries is going to be generated. There is no saving if coal, petroleum, or natural gas is burned to produce electricity. Hydro, geothermal, tidal, solar power are ideal, but these cannot meet the electrical requirements. Nuclear power could, but there is the issue of public acceptance. Too bad, because uh, nuclear power can indeed be extremely safely produced. Hydrogen can be used in fuel cells to power electric vehicles, but most hydrogen is generated by reacting methane with water, and that reaction releases carbon dioxide. Burning biomass, that is plant material or animal waste, can make a significant contribution if it is carbon neutral. For example, burning sugarcane waste to produce electricity can be carbon neutral if the amount of carbon dioxide released is countered by carbon dioxide taken up from the air through photosynthesis when the sugarcane is growing. Many technologies will have to work cohesively to squeeze out the increased electrical energy needed to power all those electric cars that are destined to hit the road. And we better get those cars on the road because about a third of all greenhouse gases escaping into the atmosphere are produced by road vehicle emissions. Another benefit of electric cars is that they do not produce the tiny particles of unburned hydrocarbons that are a major cause of air pollution and are linked to cardiovascular disease and to lung disease. But, as you know, there's always a but. Not everything is totally rosy with electric cars because the batteries that are used, of course, have to be manufactured. And that requires numerous components uh, especially lithium. And uh, lithium is being mined mostly in Chile and in Australia, but we're going to need more and more of it. Uh, there already is a, a lithium mine in, in, in Quebec, but uh, it doesn't contribute much on a global scale. So the, the problem of lithium is an issue. There are other rare earth compounds used in, in batteries as well that have to be uh, obtained. And then there's the problem of all of those used batteries. 
because batteries cannot be recharged infinitely. So they eventually run out of, of, uh, of commission. What happens to them? Uh, recycling is not an easy thing to do with these batteries. A lot of them just get buried in landfills. Now, of course, with time, the batteries will become more and more uh, efficient and some of these problems will be, be solved. But uh, the electric car, while certainly a, a very, very useful alternative to uh, petroleum-powered cars, uh, is not problem-free. Uh, indeed, you know, nothing in the world is. Uh, unfortunately, there's always a but uh, in, in science. We're, you know, always saying on the one hand, but on the other hand. And uh, that's the way things are. Is always a question of weighing the risks against the benefits. <clears throat> Let me uh, give you another interesting little story here. And uh, this, this comes from uh, Ben Selinger. Ben is a, a, a colleague in Australia who does a lot of the same kind of stuff that I do here. That is, you know, he likes to uh, popularize science and uh, battle against pseudoscience. And um, in, in a very clever book that he has, it's called Why the Watermelon Won't Ripen Your Armpit. He tells a little story. Uh, let me just give you this. The principal of a small middle school had a problem with a few older girls using lipstick. After applying it in the bathroom, they would press their lips to the mirror and leave prints. To end the practice, he gathered together all the girls who wore lipstick and told them he wanted to meet them in the ladies' room at 2 p.m. They arrived on time and found the principal and the school custodian waiting for them. The principal explained what a job it was for the custodian to clean the mirror every night. He said he felt the girls did not fully understand this and he wanted to show them just how hard the lipstick was to clean. The custodian then demonstrated. He took a long-handled brush out of a box. He dipped the brush in the nearest toilet and then moved to the mirror and proceeded to remove the lipstick. And that was the last day the girls ever pressed their lips onto that mirror. <laughs> Great little story. And uh, I suspect that it is uh, probably true as well. All right. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. It's time to check what is going out there in the world of traffic. And we will be right back. <laughs> Grade A milk emulsified, maltodextrin alkalide, silicon dioxalite, lots of sugar, hey, all right. calcified synthetic salt, artificial barley malt, glycerin and aspartate, folic acid. That tastes great. All right, we are back. And I think we have Ron on the line. Ron. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Joe. We're big fans of your program. Um, question on um, uh, water purification. We are making a uh, container one foot by two foot by one foot deep and filling it with rice anth anthracite, clean rice anthracite, because we know they use that in municipal uh, cleansing of uh, water. And we're going to add uh, at the bottom um, uh, activated charcoal and perhaps a little sand at the bottom. Would that take out all, would the anthracite remove um, uh, contaminants in various products? Oh, well, it depends. It depends on, on how much of it you use and how finely ground it is and the pressure that is being applied to the water to squeeze it through the filtering medium. But why are you doing this? The pressure, pressure would be 50 pounds. Well, because it's well water, we're trying to clean it. Yeah. Uh, 
it is possible that that would work well, but the only way to know is to test it before and after. You oh, know, no, this, I agree uh, with that. Is, it, is anthracite toxic when you pass water through it? No. No, okay, it is well, just coal. Uh, Essentially, it's coal. No. Yeah, it's, you're it you're removed, talking about charcoal. It, I mean, charcoal is, is a basic medium that is used, you know, in uh, uh, in water filtration. So you're not reinventing the wheel here. Uh, but but the only way to know whether or not your particular setup works is to test the water before and after. Oh, no, no, I, I absolutely agree. But does it remove bacteria when it passes through the... Uh, under pressure through the uh, the, the mince and no, it, no, it may not remove bacteria. You need chlorination or ozonation to remove bacteria. Okay, you've answered my question. Thank you very much. Okay, all right, bye. And, uh, you know, that's, we like to keep you up to date on what is happening in the world. And, of course, what is happening in the world is the World Cup. England is up 3-0 over Senegal, and so they will undoubtedly go through to the next round. Okay, did have an answer uh, from uh, oh several people about my question about the French paradox, and uh, they mostly got it uh, correct, suggesting that the French paradox is is sort of uh, uh, raising the question of how is it that the French, in spite of uh, all of the croissant cheese and everything they consume, how is it that they seem to have a uh, lower rate of uh, heart disease than North Americans. So it's an interesting story, and I thought I would ask that question so I could kind of bring you, you know, up to date on what this is all about, give you a little bit of background. So let's start with that background. We'll go back to November 17, 1991. And uh, I know that some of you are uh, senior enough to remember that. I certainly do remember that evening. And it should be commemorated as a holy day for the American wine industry. Why? Because on that Sunday night, an industry that was struggling for breath was resuscitated in one fell swoop. And that swoop was a segment on the popular CBS news program, 60 Minutes, in which a case was made for moderate wine consumption being the answer to the French paradox. How is it, asked the host Morley Safer, that the French, who eat all those buttery croissants, they down 40 pounds of fatty cheese per person every year, and they gorge on cholesterol-laden goose liver. How come that they have a lower rate of heart disease than we do here in North America? Well, interviewee Dr. Serge Renault proposed that regular wine consumption reduces the stickiness of platelets, the disc-shaped cell fragments that help form blood clots. Their function is critical when it comes to stopping wounds from bleeding, but platelets can also stick to the walls of arteries, especially where fatty deposits may have triggered inflammation. This can lead to impaired blood flow, heart disease, and stroke. Renault did not delve into the mechanism by which wine prevents platelet aggregation, but implied that it was the alcohol in wine that was responsible. Well, anyway, after this show, on Monday morning, many of the 20 million people who had watched the 60-minute segment the night before scurried to stock up on wine. In the ensuing four weeks, consumers purchased 2.6 million more bottles of red wine than during the same period the previous year. Quite an increase, 44%. Merlot saw the largest increase in sales, prompting California's vineyards to increase acreage fourfold by 1996. Then in 2004, Merlot sales hit a snag with the release of cider. 
Castaways, a film that dealt with the comedic escapades of a couple of friends traveling through California's wine country. In a classic quip, one of the characters warns his friend that if anyone orders Merlot, I'm leaving, I'm not drinking any of that uh, F Merlot. Sales dropped while those of Pinot Noir increased. Overall, though, the movie boosted total wine sales, demonstrating how easily people are influenced by the media. The message the most, uh, that most viewers took away uh, was that the French were protected from heart disease because of their wine consumption. Other points raised by Renault and his colleagues were mostly ignored because they weren't as seductive as reaching for that glass of wine. For example, Renault also addressed milk consumption, which is far greater in America than in France, and compared it with cheese consumption, which is far greater in France. He suggested that the fat in milk is readily absorbed into the bloodstream, while the fermentation process that cheese undergoes results in calcium binding with fats, causing them to be eliminated. To demonstrate that this is more than just theory, Dr. Renault described his experiment with, of all things, rat poop. His experimental rats were fed either milk or camembert cheese with comparable amounts of fat and calcium. The cheese-fed rats eliminated virtually all the dairy fat in their doo-doo, while the rats on the milk diet did not. Furthermore, when the animals were sacrificed and dissected, the cheesy rats' arteries were clear, while the milky ones were clogged. Other differences between the French and the American lifestyles were also noted. The French eat three meals a day, with lunch being the largest, while Americans snack continuously. Most meals in France are freshly prepared, while Americans buy processed foods. Then there is the time element and social interactions. In France, meals are enjoyed with company and are not rushed through, while in the U.S., a lunch may consist of a hot dog and a sugary beverage at Papaya King, with the total time taken between ordering and finishing off the meal being three and a half minutes. Finally, Americans just consume more food than the French, about 10% more calories per day. That just may be the real key to the French paradox, uh, as revealed by a follow-up segment, once more with Morley Safer, and that was in 2009. In the 18 years since the first episode aired, a compound called resveratrol had been discovered in wine. It was um, uh, mostly by uh, Harvard geneticist Dr. David Sinclair, who had shown it capable of activating a gene that codes for the production of proteins known as sirtuins that trigger a survival mechanism that can extend life. While the possibility that the benefits of red wine may be due to activation of this longevity gene was alluring, it quickly became apparent that the dose needed to cause such activation was far greater than is available from wine. However, since the compound was not difficult to synthesize, the prospect of developing a pill containing a sufficient amount of resveratrol, or perhaps an even more active derivative, was raised. And this became even more attractive with the discovery that calorie restriction in animals results in the activation of the gene that codes for sirtuins. It has long been known that in many animal species, calorie restriction results in healthier aging and longer life. However, consuming 30% fewer calories is not an appetizing prospect. Could resveratrol mimic calorie restriction? Could a pill be the long-sought-after fountain of youth? 
Despite over 20,000 research papers published on various aspects of resveratrol, no human trials have made a convincing case for resveratrol supplements, although safety, even with large doses, has been demonstrated. Resveratrol, then, does not seem to be the secret behind the French paradox, if indeed the paradox exists. Some critics even claim that the paradox is an illusion because heart disease deaths are not tabulated the same way in France as in the U.S. Still, the prevention of platelet aggregation by alcohol seems to be scientifically sound, so that a glass of red wine with a meal may not be a bad idea, especially if you make an effort to cut down the size of that meal. So now you know why I uh, asked the question about the French paradox, so I could bring you up to date on what I think is a rather interesting story and a question that is always raised about the benefits and indeed the safety of drinking red wine. Bottom line, again, as I've said many times, let's not evaluate every drop of drink and every morsel of food we put into our mouth in terms of is it good for us or not. Life is there to be enjoyed. And that includes having a glass of red wine for dinner, but a glass is enough. You're listening to Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. So for a while we conducted experiments in an apartment by the river road. And we found out that the two things we put together had a bad tendency to explode. All right. Well, we had the French paradox question answered, but I still have one out there. That was of what use is the root of the matter plant? Give us a call, 514-790-0800 or text us at 514-800. And uh, let me pose another question. Now, this is uh, for you real trivia fans, but of course, there is a scientific connection. Let's see how you do with this one. I'll be impressed if you get this. What happened to Jay Garrick, that's G-A-R-R-I-C-K, when he was working in a lab and knocked over a bottle of hard water and inhaled the fumes? Okay, let me repeat. What happened to Jay Garrick when he was working in the lab and knocked over a bottle of hard water and inhaled the fumes? Give us a call, 514-790-0800, text to 514-800. I asked a question this morning on the trivia show. <clears throat> what gets in between Tom Brady and his pajamas? Well, the answer that I was looking for was bioceramic microparticles. Well, I'll tell you the truth. These tiny crystals of silicon dioxide and titanium dioxide aren't exactly between Tom and his pajamas. They are embedded in the fiber of the pajamas. This is a type of polyester. Why? Because supposedly they are the key to help sore muscles recover and they also facilitate better sleep. Who says so? Well, Tom Brady. Without a doubt, one of the best quarterbacks in NFL history. So we listen. Anyway, in a promotional video for the Under Armour company, he opines that, let me quote him, without the sleepwear, I don't really feel like I would have been able to achieve the things that I have done and hope to continue to do. What the sleepwear is talking about is made of cellulant, and that's a proprietary textile 
that claims to capture body heat and reflect its far infrared component back into the body. And this has the effect, and let me quote again, of increasing local circulation and cellular oxygenation, resulting in more energy, endurance, strength, stamina, comfort, quicker recovery, and better sleep. That sounds pretty good. Sounds like a real miracle fabric, doesn't it? Tested and proven through clinical trials, claims Hologenics. And they're the manufacturer of the fabric that uh, uh, Brady so enthusiastically endorses. Now, let's just note for the record that uh, Tom won, I think it was about five or six Super Bowls before he had ever heard of bioceramics. But uh, what I want to look at here is this claim of uh, tested and proven through clinical trials. Well, for sure, that's alluring. But you know, it doesn't exactly mean what people think it means. It doesn't mean that the product or procedure that is being evaluated was proven to be of value in real life. That is, that it had a real practical significance. Let me give you an example. One of the studies quoted uh, has the published title, Effect of salient armbands on grip strength in subjects with chronic wrist and elbow pain, a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. Now, a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial is sort of the gold standard in science. This is good. So what did the researchers do? They found that the grip strength, which they measured by a device known as a dynamometer, increased by about 9% more in subjects who wore the ceramic impregnated armband than in those who wore the placebo. Now, statistically, this is unlikely to be due to chance, and therefore the armband was judged to be effective. But no measurements of any effect on pain were carried out, so the study doesn't really provide any thunderous support for the benefits of salient fiber. You know, so maybe the, the people wearing it were able to squeeze their hand with a bit more strength. But it doesn't tell you anything about, you know, people with arthritic pain uh, having any less pain. All right. How about a study that seems to be more relevant to the pajama effect? Okay, here's one that they quote once again as, you know, supporting evidence. <laughs> Randomized controlled trial comparing the effects of far-infrared-emitting ceramic fabric shirts and controlled polyester shirts on transcutaneous oxygen pressure. In this case, the level of oxygen circulating just below the skin was measured, and since blood flow is important in wound healing, transcutaneous oxygen measurement can be used to gauge the ability of tissues to heal effectively. Now, after wearing the ceramic fabric shirt for 90 minutes, the transcutaneous oxygen pressure was about 7% higher than after wearing the placebo shirt for the same period of time. It's an interesting finding, not likely to be due to chance. But again, no measurements were made of muscle recovery, stamina, or sleep. Not included in the list of clinical evidence studies on Hologenics's website is one that was published in 2021. Utilization of far-infrared-emitting garments for optimizing performance and recovery in sport, real potential or new fad, a systematic review. 
In this case, researchers scrutinized the scientific literature for trials that involved the wearing of far-infrared emitting garments and uh, any study that also had measurements of effects on performance or on physiology. They found 11 trials that met the criteria of being good, of having been properly carried out. None of these showed a statistically significant effect on performance. A couple suggested a slight reduction in muscle soreness, and one showed a small effect on sleep duration. This is not exactly compelling evidence. But you know what? Uh, let's, let's not throw the far-infrared emitting technology under the bus just yet. Let's let mice, frogs, and rabbits have their say. Well, in one study, mouse muscle cells were cultured with ceramic powder under the culture dishes, and they showed less signs of oxidative stress and elevated levels of nitric oxide. That's a neurotransmitter that plays a role in vasodilation and in enhanced blood flow. Then in frog skeletal muscles, far-infrared emitting ceramics delayed the onset of fatigue induced by muscle contractions. And get this, when arthritis was chemically induced in rabbits, those in cages surrounded by paper sheets impregnated with a thin layer of ceramic powder experienced greater reduction in inflammation than a control group surrounded by the same sheets without the powder. But of course... We are not mice, we're not frogs, and we are not uh, rabbits. Now, as far as Tom Brady's PJs go, at $200 for a top and bottom, they're not cheap. But uh, given that at age 45, Tom can still perform like a young buck and still pass very well, I, I think he'll have to be making more than one kind of pass and the near future, given his status with Giselle. Anyway, he attributes some of the success to his inflammation-reducing pajamas, although there's no evidence. So it's no surprise that many Tom wannabes have forked out the 200 bucks. They have also blogged extensively about their experience. What do they say? The PJs are comfortable and not overly warm. But as far as any restorative effect goes, they say not noticeable. I don't know about, uh, you know, uh, going by anecdotal evidence, but as I, I told you before, there's just no compelling uh, scientific study that shows any uh, benefit. And by the way, Tom follows quite a healthy diet. He works out a great deal, doesn't use any electronic screens before going to bed, and he does this consistently at 8.30, goes to bed. No wonder he sleeps well. And we know how important sleep is for uh, athletic performance, indeed for any other kind of performance. I suspect Tom would sleep just as well without the bioceramics. But maybe he sleeps a bit better with them, given that he's being paid a fair amount of money for endorsing them. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show, and we'll be right back. <music> Discoveries for happiness in a fabulous array. A never ending searches on by man. All right.
right. Well, someone commented on Tom Brady that he probably sleeps better without Giselle in the bed. I don't, I don't know about that. Uh, uh, Giselle was, you know, uh, pretty good looking. And I, anyway, I'm sure that Tom doesn't spend too many nights alone. Then I asked a question about Jay Garrick. He was working in the lab and knocked over a bottle of hard water and inhaled the fumes. What happened to him? And uh, James, who usually has the correct answer to your questions, is a bit off on on this one. Uh, He thinks that we're really talking about heavy water. And this converted Jay Garrick into a superhero by the name of The Flash. Well, there is sort of half right there. Indeed, he turned into, into the Flash. That is true. But in the cartoon, it is actually very clearly referred to as hard water. Now, hard water is just water that has minerals in it. And it doesn't give off any fumes. And uh, the way it is described in the, in the comic, uh, Jay Garrick needed a smoke. When he smokes, he gets real casual just so relaxing that he can't help but coolly lean back onto whatever happens to be behind him. And what is behind him? It's hard water. Watch out, clumsy old Jay. Knocked over all the glass thingamajigs that have the hard water in them. So what does this brilliant scientist do? Why, bend over to pick it all up, of course. And in doing so, he just happens to breathe in some noxious hard water fumes. Okay. That's the way it is in the cartoon. Now, I suspect that that uh, the cartoonists here did not have a good grasp of science. And he may actually have heard something about heavy water and he confused it. Uh, now, heavy water doesn't give off fumes either. But uh, heavy water at least might have some physiological uh, effect different from uh, hard water. Anyway, I mean, neither hard water nor heavy water is going to turn someone into a superhero. But uh, in the 1940s, of course, when superheroes were hot, uh, there were all these kind of stories. Then there was a second reincarnation, actually, of the Flash. And uh, that was in, in the person of Barry Allen. This is interesting, too. Barry grew up reading the adventures of his favorite superhero, Jay Garrick, the original Flash. So goes this version of the comic. And he acted out many of his hero's adventures with his friends and his uh, future uh, uh, colleague, Daphne Dean. Anyway, when he was a child, his mother was killed and his father was convicted of the crime. The drive to prove his father uh, was innocent. He, he wanted to prove that his father was innocent. And this gave Barry a very strong belief in justice. But Barry loved chemistry from an early age. And uh, that helped his skills as a farmer. He actually won first place in the Falwell County Fair Agricultural Competition, a prize that included a scholarship to Sun City University. He graduated in three years with a major in organic chemistry and a minor in criminology. While a senior, Barry helped the authorities apprehend a bank robber, and he was offered a job as a police scientist for the Central City Police Department Scientific Detection Bureau. Eager to be in the sister city of his childhood hero's home, Keystone City, he accepted the offer. 
After moving to Central City and getting an apartment with a laboratory in the back, Barry began uh, dating picture news reporter Iris West, whom he met while examining an apparent murder that she was reporting. And she was charmed by his honesty and stability. That night, during an electrical storm, Barry returned to an experiment after taking a short break, and all of a sudden, a bolt of lightning streaked through the window, shattered a chemical cabinet, and covered Barry in the electrified chemicals. Dazed, he decided to return home in a taxi. However, the taxi started to pull away without noticing him. Barry sprinted after it, only to run straight past it as if it had been standing still. He decided to sit down and recollect his thoughts at a diner. The passing waitress accidentally spilled the items on her tray onto Barry, who amazingly caught them all in midair and returned them to the tray. Next day, Barry saved Iris from a stray bullet. There was no question about it. The freak accident had somehow given Barry superhuman speed. <laughs> well, there. Now you know the story uh, behind Jay Garrig and behind Barry Allen and The Flash and some silly chemistry that was uh, involved there because no matter what you uh, spill on yourself, you're not going to turn into a superhero. But it's always interesting to look at uh, you know, cartoons and see whatever scientific involvement they may have had. Uh, I, I grew up on Superman. I used to collect Superman uh, comics. Unfortunately, uh, I gave them away because <laughs> uh, back in those days, you never thought that these things would have value. And I, I don't remember exactly you know, what I had, I mean, I certainly didn't have, you know, the first issue of Super or anything like that, but I think I had some some that may have been uh, valuable. Anyway, the Superman had some sort of pseudoscience in it as well. You know, he was born on the planet Krypton, and uh, that was going to explode. So his parents uh, put him in a rocket and uh, directed him towards Earth. And because of the gravity difference between the planets, here he had all these superpowers. He was able to fly, uh, but uh, he was also allergic to uh, kryptonite, which was uh, residue of the exploded planet. Uh, of course, they never really explained in the comics why that would be the case, you know, why he should be allergic uh, to that. Um, but... Uh, they they try to to you know talk about the gravity business as giving him some superpower, although of course they never explained how he was able to uh, stand up to a speeding bullet. Uh, but uh, Superman was uh, uh, great in my childhood. I, I loved to read those comics, and I remember I was very excited the first time that I saw the old Superman TV series starring George Reeve who unfortunately was an actor who in the end committed suicide. Uh, but the very first time that I, I, I saw George Reeve uh, wasn't really in the Superman series. He guested on uh, the I Love Lucy show. I used to watch that all the time. I, I thought that she was a, a great comedian. And George Reeve uh, um, guest starred in one episode playing Superman uh, when uh, Lucy somehow got Superman uh, to come to her son's birthday party. Uh, you know, when you now take a look, of course, at uh, at that old show, which was, I guess, in the 1950s, 
Superman show, it technically looks uh, pretty primitive. I mean, you can see that, you know, when he was flying, he, he must have been, you know, lying on a table. And then they managed on the film to, to block out the, uh, the table. But the, the plots were not, uh, not too bad. Uh, of course, by the time that uh, Christopher Reeve played uh, um, Superman uh, in the film, I, I, I think that, if I remember right, I think that was 1976. Uh, by that time, the uh, special effects had become very, very good. And uh, indeed, I, I looked at that movie quite recently, and it's very, very good. Uh, when he flies around carrying uh, Lois Lane in his arms, uh, Marco Kidder, course played that role Canadian and uh, it was very very good I'm not sure exactly how they uh, how they did that and the flying scenes were really really well done uh, you know quite a, a, a quite a leap from uh, the uh, old TV uh, series anyway just a little bit of reflection on uh, past happenings and uh, collecting of uh, of comics and <laughs> Of course, I shouldn't have given them uh, away. Uh, we also collected, uh, of course, cards, hockey cards, baseball cards when I was a kid. And uh, we didn't just put them away. We actually played with them. With the cards, we would throw them against the wall. And whoever got closest to the wall would get all the cards, uh, which, of course, also meant that the corners of the cards were destroyed. So any of that would have value, of course, would have lost their value. But... In those days, we just didn't think about collecting. All right. Well, we've collected some interesting stories here for you today, I hope. Uh, tomorrow at 2 o'clock, it being the first Monday in December, I'll be at the Eleanor London Public Library in Cote St. Luke. You're all invited. Live presentation. And we're going to talk about occupational hazards, occupational hazards and how to stay away uh, from them. So that's at 2 o'clock in the Eleanor London Public Library, just across the street from the Cavendish Mall. And we are smack out of time today, but we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.